many people who have questions about life, and a lot of the questions are really good questions. Uh, thankfully, God has all the answers to our questions, even those really tough ones that we might have. We're going to look at three of those questions tonight, all of them related to the same topic. They all have to do with alcohol. Now, for some people, alcohol can be a very touchy subject. So as we begin tonight, may I encourage you to have an open mind to what God has to say. I don't want this to be my personal opinion. I don't want this to be the opinion of any individual. Rather, let's look at what God has to say in his word. That's what really matters. Those questions we're going to answer are, did Jesus turn water into alcohol? Doesn't Proverbs encourage certain groups to have a drink? And didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink a little wine? When it comes to the Bible, those are probably the most common questions uh, concerning the topic of alcohol. And by the way, maybe you're here tonight or someone's watching and you don't drink. But if you're like me, at some point you probably have been asked, well, what's wrong with social drinking? What's wrong with drinking in moderation? Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Again, good questions. Before we answer any of those, though, let me first lay a foundation. To begin, I've got an illustration for you. I brought a bag of Doritos chips up here. Um, not the nacho flavor, but the cool ranch flavor. How many of you like nachos? Almost every hand goes up. A lot of hands anyways. I don't eat them that often, but if you have one, it's hard to stop with one, isn't it? Uh, but what if I told you that the following statistics came from people who ate this chip? What if I said that roughly 140,000 people die yearly in the United States after they've had this chip? What if I said that roughly 31% of driving fatalities occur after people have eaten a bag of Doritos? What if I said just 10 years ago, the fact that people ate this chip cost the United States almost $250 billion in one year? One year. And what if I said about 40% of violent crimes occurred after people ate Doritos? <laughs> now you laugh because you know that's not true. And, and I want to be very clear on that. It's not true, right? You can, not, none of that's going to happen if you eat this chip. Uh, if it were true about Doritos, though, can you imagine the uproar that would take place in this country? There would probably be protests and riots and all sorts of plants and cities. And it'd, it'd be terrible. Um, now, of course, that's not the case. However, each of those statistics I gave you is true, but you need to replace the word Doritos with alcohol. Suddenly, when you do that, there are many people in this world who will run to alcohol's defense. And they'll give all sorts of reasons why it has nothing to do with alcohol. Um, I believe a majority of people, though, would say that to be completely out of your mind drunk is wrong. Right? Most people would probably say that, and, and we know from Scripture that God is against drunkenness. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 18 with me. It says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So be not drunk with wine. Don't get drunk. God is very clear on this. As we've seen from those statistics I read, drunkenness creates a lot of problems, not only for the individual doing the drinking, but for many who are around that person. And honestly, I could give you many, many more statistics about the impact of alcohol on society and families, but we don't have to. As we see from Ephesians 5, God is against drunkenness. Now that brings us to a more controversial question. Does God care if a believer has an occasional drink? Does God care about social drinking? Turn with me now to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. 
The Bible tells us to be sober. And I believe I have that as your first blank there on your sheets. The Bible tells us to be sober. We're going to look at a few verses in a little bit that share that. First of all, though, what does it mean to be sober? Now, many people might answer, it means not drunk. And that's true, but it's more than that. This first definition I'm going to give you is from Strong's Concordance of the Greek language. And there's a couple different definitions, but I, I took one of them. It says this, to be sound in mind, to be in the right mind, to abstain from wine. To abstain from wine. That's what it means to be sober. The second definition I'm about to give you pops up when you do a simple Google search definition of sober. It says not affected by alcohol. So in other words, if we were to put this on a scale, being drunk and being sober are not right next to each other. No, they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You may not be drunk, if I say drunkenness is over here, but if you've had one drink, you're no longer in your right mind. You've no longer abstained. You're no longer sober. Does that make sense? Again, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So uh, where does God tell us to be sober? Well, there's 12 different times it's mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 gives us a list of qualifications for church leadership. Church leadership is supposed to be sober. That makes sense, doesn't it? You want those in authority to make right decisions and to be in their right mind. I had you turn to Titus chapter 2. We see, first of all, in verse 2, that the aged men or older men is what that means. They're supposed to be sober. That the aged men be sober. It's not just for the older men, though. The younger men are also supposed to be sober. Look down at verse 6. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And then we also know that the older women are supposed to teach the young women a number of different things. There's a whole list of items that are given in this chapter. Guess what the first item on the list is? Be sober. Teach them to be sober. Titus 2 verse 4, that they may teach their young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And it goes on in verse 5 from there. Can you imagine how much better society would be if this was actually being applied? to families and individuals. But why would God put that as the first item on this list, that the young women are to be taught by the older women? Well, it's going to be really hard to love your husband, love your children, or do anything else that's listed here if you're not in your right mind. So be sober. That just about covers everyone, but in case you're here or you're watching and you feel like that you're not any of those groups there, uh, God gives us just an open-ended command in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober. Be sober. That covers everyone. Why? Well, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If we have any alcohol in our system, we're lowering our watchfulness, lowering our inhibitions, and we're more likely to make foolish and sometimes flat-out wrong decisions. Proverbs talks about this. If you want, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31, these verses I'm about to read specifically talk about kings and those in authority, but it's a true principle for all of us. And you'll see that here as I read it. Proverbs 31, verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink. Why is that the case? Well, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. This is actually something they teach in driver's ed. Now, they don't have a reference to Proverbs 31 as they're teaching it, 
But when I was in driver's ed almost 20 years ago, I can remember this question being on the test. What is the very first thing that alcohol impacts? It impacts your judgment. That was the answer, and I vividly remember it. Then you see this throughout the scripture. That was the case for Lot. Uh, he committed great sin after he got drunk. His own daughters got him drunk for the purpose of committing incest with him. Belshazzar was having a drunken feast when the writing on the wall appeared, telling him that the kingdom was going to be taken from him. Uh, Noah is another example of someone who did something foolish when he drank. And uh, Nabal. Nabal is a great example of drinking and the impact that that can have. So nothing good comes from drinking alcohol. Now, many times, though, you'll hear people say that they don't want to get drunk. They just want a social drink. But even that doesn't make sense. The world recognizes the impact of a little bit of alcohol in our systems. They've actually got a term for it. They call it the legal limit. The legal limit. You don't please God with the legal limit. God doesn't want believers to see how close they can get to some man-made regulation. Instead, God wants us to be sober, be in our right minds, think properly, abstain, get your thinking right. And with that, be filled with the Spirit. If anything else is clouding our judgment or our thinking, you cannot be completely filled with the Spirit the way that God wants it to be. Again, you'll hear people say, but I don't want to get drunk. I just want a little bit. Galatians 5.9 warns us that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We covered that verse a couple months ago in our series in Galatians. And the context of that is that we're not supposed to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In essence, we're to keep the gospel clear. Don't muddy the waters of salvation. But I think it's a principle that's true for life. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I am not a master chef, but I know if you put a little bit of yeast into any product that you are baking, it affects the whole product. It affects the whole pastry, doesn't it? It's also important to keep in mind that for many people, when they decide to have one drink to take the edge off, it's hard to stop with one. If you've had a bad day and you've had a car accident or your boss has chewed you out, you've had an argument with your spouse or your kids have been misbehaving, it can be hard for a lot of people to stop with one. It's a temptation to continue down a rough path. But you know, again, even just a little bit impacts a lot. If I were to give you an example, you know, this morning, um, some of you came and a good number of people come and, and they come at nine o'clock or shortly thereafter, we have coffee, donuts, oatmeal, great conversation with one another. What if I told you that this morning, as the coffee was brewing, I took a little bit of rat poison and put it in the coffee? You'd think I'm crazy, right? You'd be upset and rightfully so. What if I'd said, well, it's just a little bit. It's not a big deal. It's just a little bit. No, you'd see that there's an issue with that. We see this in most aspects of life, but for some reason, alcohol, a little bit, oh, that's okay. That's different for some reason. The world knows the problems with smoking. You'll see advertisements against it. Uh, all the problems that can happen, pregnant women, uh, you know, younger people aren't supposed to smoke, all these different things. But what's interesting is I have yet to see a marriage that's broken up or a spouse or children who are beating because someone was having a smoke. And yet alcohol, how much advertising do you see for it in a positive way? You can't go to a sporting event without seeing it. Uh, the NFL playoffs are going on right now. I, almost every commercial break, there's some ad for alcohol. 
You can't watch a Hallmark movie without alcohol being put into a positive light. There's so many different parts of our life where alcohol is seen as a good thing. But alcohol, how many marriages have been broken up? How many kids or wives have been beaten? How many people end up in prison because they do something under the influence that they probably wouldn't have done had they not been drinking? You're in the book of Proverbs. It's so clear here that alcohol is not good for us. Uh, Turn to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Look at verse 29. It gives us a great description of what alcohol can do. It says, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? That doesn't sound like a very happy person. Certainly, that's not an individual whose joy of the Lord is their strength. So who is this describing? Well, verse 30, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. And then verse 31 gives us a clear command. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Don't even look at it. It's going to be really hard to drink it if you're not supposed to look at it. Although I did have one person on a Friday night years ago um, who came to our addictions program and they told me they didn't have to look at it. They could talk to the bartender or their friend. They could give it to him and he could close his eyes and then he could drink it. Talk about being desperate for a drink. Um, If you're not supposed to look at it, God doesn't want your friend or anyone else to be doing that either. But it continues on. It describes alcohol as a snake. At the last, it biteth like a serpent. It stinneth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Wow. What a sad, desperate person. It doesn't have to be that way. There is hope. There is help. And we'll get into that here shortly. But first, I'm going to have you turn to another proverb really quick. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Just a few pages over. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, even believers sometimes hear them say, well, this is a matter of liberty. We have liberty in Christ. This is a choice we can make. No, it's really not. I've got a great quote here by Dr. Phil Strinner. He said, The warnings about strong drink and guarding our minds are not matters of liberty. It is a sin to defy what God has said about strong drink and protecting your mind. So quite clearly, we can see from Scripture that God doesn't want us to look at it. We're not wise if we choose to drink it. And uh, we're being deceived by alcohol if we go that route. And to top it off, we are to be sober. In our right minds, we're to abstain. Have you ever heard someone say that when they drink, they make better choices and their emotions never get the better of them? That when they drink, they want to spend more quality time with their family. Or when they drink, they make really good financial decisions. No, it doesn't happen. So then the question must be asked, why do people want to drink? Why is it so prevalent in our society, not just our society, but across the world and down through history? Why do people want it? Many times you'll hear people say something to the effect of that they just want to take the edge off. They want something that can help them cope. But if you've got a problem, alcohol is not going to fix that problem. 
Many times it makes a bad situation worse. It's like throwing fuel onto a fire. Rather than going to alcohol for help, we need to go to God. There's so many verses on this. I gave you three on your verse sheet. I'll read them really quick to you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. God cares about us. Psalm 46 verse 1 is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. If God is my help, I have no need for alcohol. If God is my help, I have no need for alcohol. If you struggle in this area, take it to God. Talk to him. He is a very present help. And if you are looking for guidance on, on how you can do that and how you can put yourself in a position to succeed, come on out on Friday nights. We'd love to help you. We've got a great group of people coming. It's encouraging. I'm always encouraged there and uh, love to have you there. Seven o'clock on Friday nights. But now turn to John chapter two. John chapter two. There are many people, many believers even, who will say that social drinking is okay and they justify it by turning to the example of Jesus turning water into wine. So let's look at this passage. We've now laid a foundation about alcohol in general. Let's dig into the specific questions I have in your verse sheet. In today's culture, when we hear the word wine, we automatically assume that an alcoholic beverage is what's being referred to. But that was not always the case. That was not the case in Bible times. The English word wine in the King James literally means fruit of the vine. That's all that it means. Fruit of the vine. That can be intoxicating or it can be grape juice. Could be either one. There's another term that's used, strong drink. The Bible uses that uh, at least 20 times where it is condemned and every time it's alcoholic in nature. God is against that. But uh, what about wine? That's what we're going to focus on tonight. This liquid can exist in two forms, natural or fermented. So when you see the word wine in the Bible, you've got to look at the context. What is being talked about here? A modern day example of this would be cider. You can have hard cider. You can have apple cider. They're not the same thing. Um, another example would be lemonade. As crazy as that sounds. I remember finding this out at a baseball game some years ago. I was probably 10 or 11 years old. And my family and a couple of my friends, we were at a minor league baseball game. It was a small stadium. At the top of our section was a concession stand. I was hungry, so I went up there. I ordered a hot dog, and I also said, can I have a lemonade? Uh, you know, I saw some new lemonade. Can I have one of those lemonades there? Now, you can imagine my surprise when the person behind the counter laughed at me and said, sorry, kid, you've got to be 21 years to buy one of those because it was Mike's hard lemonade. I didn't know. I wanted lemonade, and yet it was alcoholic. So you get the idea. That's basically the same concept here in the scriptures. Wine could be alcoholic. It could be grape juice. That's what it was back at that time. Again, we need to look at the context. That brings us to the main question we're answering here. Did Jesus turn water into wine? We find Christ's first miracle in John 2. Let's read this passage through very quickly and then we'll break it down. Verse 1, the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. 
And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two, to th uh, two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said unto them, Draw it now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto, them, uh, unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, when men have well drunk than that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. People will sometimes look at the fact that the best was served first and the lesser quality served second most of the time, assuming that this was done because people were too drunk to tell the difference. But obviously that was not the case because the head of the feast could clearly distinguish between the two. The best was getting at the beginning, and if more was needed, then they would bring out the lesser quality material. Um, from time to time, we might have to do this with Sunday dinner. We had Sunday dinner last week, and all of you do such a phenomenal job bringing great food. It's amazing uh, just how much food we have. But if there's ever a situation where we don't have enough food, we have a lot of guests and, and, and there's not enough to compensate, we put out the better quality food first, and then we might look in the freezer. Are there any frozen pizzas? Are there any frozen corn dogs? Is there something else that we can put out? The lesser quality is put out afterwards. That's basically what was taking place here. And on a quick side note, these Jewish feasts and festivals could go on for days. So you can understand how they could run out of some type of food or some type of beverage. Aren't you glad, uh, those of you who have kids today, aren't you glad that feasts and festivals don't go on for days? as if recital dinners and weddings aren't expensive enough. Let's extend them for days. But I've got six basic points there on your verse sheet uh, that clearly show Christ did not make an intoxicating beverage. We see, first of all, in verse 10, number one, the people at the feast were already well drunk. The people at the feast were already well drunk. Well drunk simply means a satisfactory amount. They'd been served a satisfactory amount. But... Just for the sake of argument, let's say that this was an alcoholic beverage. If they are already well drunk and you add anything to that amount, drunkenness is what's going to happen. Guaranteed. They've already had a lot. Now you add more to the equation. Drunkenness is going to take place. We already saw in Ephesians 5, we're not to be drunk. Jesus himself actually spoke against drunkenness. Did you know that? Luke 21, verse 34, in the context, Jesus is making it abundantly clear. Um, he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. But he says this, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness. Drunkenness. Don't get drunk. The cares of this life so that day come upon you unaware. So clearly, God is against drunkenness. As we've now seen, the people at the first had already been served a good amount. They were well drunk. Adding anything to this would result in drunkenness. And then number two, Christ would have been contradicting himself had he served an alcoholic beverage. That's very clear from what I just read in Luke 21. He's against drunkenness. He would be creating drunkenness. What was taking place here at the feast. 
And we've also seen that, though, in other passages. Uh, we've seen in Proverbs that we're supposed to stay away from it. We're not to look at it. We're not wise if we drink it. Well, Jesus Christ, as the living word, would not contradict the written word. John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And as you continue down through John chapter 1, it is very clear that the only one who can meet that description is Jesus Christ. He is the word. At one place, he wouldn't say, don't even look at it. And then another section of scripture, he'd be saying, let's create it. Let's create a lot of it for people who are already well drunk. Basically, what this boils down to is people who believe that Jesus served an alcoholic beverage at this feast. They are comparing the son of God to a bartender. That is not what I am saying. That is terrible, that is disrespectful, and that is blasphemous. But that's what people who believe this is alcohol are basically saying. By the way, on a side note, uh, many times if a person has had so much to drink to the point where it's obvious they shouldn't have any more, a bartender knows to stop, right? If their eyes are glazed over, their slurred speech, they're getting aggressive with other people, um, the bartender will stop serving, at least they're supposed to. But if you really believed that Jesus served alcohol in this passage to people who were already well drunk and he served a lot of it, then what took place in this passage of scripture is worse than what goes on in most bars across the country on a Friday night. That's terrible. It's really a terrible thought. It doesn't make any sense, especially when you realize Jesus is all-knowing and he would never contradict himself. And with that, number three, this was a large amount of liquid. This was a large amount of liquid. Let me read verses six and seven again. There was set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. Now it tells us that each of these water pots contained two to three firkins. In modern day terms, that would be the equivalent of 20 to 30 gallons. 20 to 30 gallons per container. When you multiply that times six, it results in roughly 120 to 180 gallons of liquid. That's a lot of liquid. Uh, to put that in perspective, I asked Christy probably five or six years ago, how many gallons of water and lemonade do we serve on an average Sunday dinner? We've got what, 100 people, 120, sometimes more, who come to a Sunday dinner, she estimated that it was probably about 10 gallons. Again, we serve 100 to maybe 120 people for Sunday dinner. Um, to help us visualize this, I thought about bringing up one of those large rectangle garbage cans that are in the lunchroom and putting it on the stage, but after thinking about it, that seemed like a bad idea. Um, but you can picture that, right? Each of those garbage cans, those rectangular garbage cans, is 30 gallons. So basically, it would be anywhere from four to six of those garbage cans filled to the brim. That's how much liquid was turned from water into wine. Now keep in mind, this wedding took place at Cana of Galilee. Exactly how big was this place? Cana of Galilee. One commentator says it was a small village. Another commentator, a different one, says it was an obscure corner of the country remote from Jerusalem. So Cana of Galilee was not some massive city or thriving metropolis with millions of people. Probably wasn't even thousands of people. 
Um, it was a small village. It was an obscure corner of the country. And again, these people were already well drunk before Jesus turned this much water into wine. And again, the pots were filled all the way to the brim. This would have been a large amount of liquid. And then number four, it was new wine. It was new wine. By its very nature, new wine is never intoxicating. I saw several different estimates on this. They say it can take anywhere from 7 to 21 days for grape juice to turn into an alcoholic state when you add yeast, uh, which then starts the fermentation process. Now, people may wonder, but couldn't Jesus have created the alcohol, um, the wine, already in an alcoholic state? That's a good question. Uh, You know, a good question to ask. Well, as we've already seen, Jesus Christ as the living word would not contradict the written word. Uh, It goes against everything we've read tonight. You're not supposed to look at it. You're not wise if you drink at it. You're deceived if you do. And we're to be in our right minds. So that alone tells us that Jesus was not created an alcoholic beverage. But just in case all of that wasn't enough to convince you, it brings us to number five. Christ, being God was against decay and death. Christ, being God, was against decay and death. In our main text tonight, we've been looking at a wedding party. But what took place at every funeral Jesus attended? The dead were raised to life, right? What what went from a mournful funeral very quickly turned into a joyous celebration. It would have been against the very nature of Jesus Christ uh, to create something that was in the process of decay, which is exactly what fermentation is. Now, so far, I've given you five main points as to why this was not alcoholic. But I think the greatest argument, the greatest proof here is in the sixth and final point. The whole purpose of this miracle was to show the glory of God. The whole purpose of it was to show the glory of God. As it says in verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. His disciples believed on him. Very clearly from this verse, Jesus turned the water into wine to manifest or to show his glory. Providing this much alcohol for a wedding party, a group that's already well drunk, would have done the exact opposite. But here, I don't think that's the case. It's so clear. When you put it all together, it's abundantly clear from the context Jesus did not turn it into an alcoholic substance. I can remember a conversation I had uh, with a guy who came out some years ago on a Friday night. I've had a lot of these conversations over the years. But this guy in particular struggled with alcohol for most of his life. That's why he was coming to the program. And he thought, though, that alcohol was okay in moderation, which was a big part of his struggle because he never stopped with one. But he thought alcohol was okay in moderation, in part because Jesus turned water into wine. And so I showed him somewhat of what I've shown you tonight. Now, by the way, if you're going to have this type of conversation with someone, don't beat them over the head with the Bible, right? Do it in a loving way. Kindly come alongside the person and show them what God says in a caring way. But uh, I tried to do that with this guy. By the end of the explanation, he understood clearly this was not alcohol. There's no way that that's possible. But this man immediately turned to a different argument. He said that there was this historical figure he looked up to. Historical figure did great things. And that guy drank on a regular basis. Well, if it's good enough for the historical figure, it's good enough for me. That's what this man told me. I explained to him, well, uh, you know what? 
this guy, this historical figure did a lot of great things. However, drinking is not one of them. And uh, he should not have been drinking while he was in charge of a country. Proverbs is clear on that. It affects your judgment. It impacts the way you think. So this man turned to a third argument. He said his, uh, his parents were alcoholics. That's why he was the way he was. That's why he was an alcoholic. So I explained to him, just because your parents did something does not mean you have to do something. You have a choice. It goes back to free will, like Pastor was just talking about. You've got a choice. And the best thing you can do with that choice is look to the word of God. What does God say? He gives direction on what to do and what not to do. Well, at this point in the conversation, the man simply said, I like to drink and I don't want to give it up. Ah, now we've got into the heart of the issue here. It's not the fact that Jesus turned water into wine or some historical figure did it or your parents are alcoholics. It's you enjoy it and you don't want to give it up. And that's what it boils down to for many people. Unfortunately, many people are looking for an excuse to drink. And it doesn't have to be that way. If a person wants to quit, if they want to stop coping and instead have an abundant life that God provides, uh, the logical individual would reject alcohol. You don't need it. You can have so much fun in life without having alcohol. It's not necessary. And we should use our lives to bring glory to God just as Jesus did here in this passage. So that's the main section of scripture that people turn to who, who use this as an excuse to drink. But there are others. And I'm going to very quickly touch on these other two. I know we're running out of time here. Turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31. There are two verses here that I've already read to you about kings and, and how they should not drink. Uh, lest they drink and forget the law, pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Yes, those two verses are writing specifically to kings, but the main point is alcohol affects your judgment. And that's true for everyone. The passage then continues. It doesn't stop there. It continues, and it tells us who it is that should drink alcohol. Which brings us to question number two. Doesn't Proverbs encourage certain groups of people to have a drink? Maybe you've been asked that question. I've been asked that a few times on a Friday night. Doesn't Proverbs encourage certain groups to have a drink? Look at Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. And wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Now there are those who will look at this passage and use it to say, I've had a bad day. I've had a really bad day. I need to have a glass of wine or I need something stronger to uh, take the edge off. That is most definitely not what this passage is describing. This is for someone who is about to die. That's what it says. So that blank there, it is describing medicinal use. It is describing medicinal use. Not simply drowning out the problems of life. And certainly, it's not written for us as an excuse to social drink. With modern medical advancements, we do have uh, pain relievers and other medicines that can help a person who is struggling. I am not advocating all pain relievers or any amount of pain relievers. Don't take that away from this. But if there is a person who is having major surgery or they're in a lot of pain and they're about to pass away, there are medicines that can help that individual and help them uh, have some peace in those moments. Um, back when this, when this was written, though, those options were not available. And so someone who is in great pain and about to die, someone who is uh, about to have tremendous surgery, that's who they would give alcohol to. 
That is what's being described. And then that brings us to the final question we're going to cover this evening, final uh, controversial question. Number three, didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink wine? Didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink wine? This verse uh, talks about it, 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul tells Timothy, drink no longer wine, uh, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. Now, it's amazing how many people will use this verse as an excuse for social drinking. I've had this verse used in that context. Again, that's not the point here. You need to look at the context. Who is it that's being spoken to? In this case, it's specifically Timothy. If your takeaway from this verse is that it's okay for you to have a little wine, um, then you also need to take the first part of the verse with it. And you can no longer drink any water. Again, that doesn't make any sense. And so clearly, this is not advocating social drinking. What did Paul mean when he wrote it? Paul's counsel here related to medical use, not social enjoyment. Paul's counsel related to medical use, not social enjoyment. Back during this time period, there was a huge problem with contaminated water. Um, In fact, there are still problems with it in many parts of the world today. Probably 13 or 15 years ago, my brother Dan went on a missions trip to India. And before they went on the trip, he was told, do not drink any of the tap water. Even when you take a shower or brush your teeth, do not get any of that water in your mouth. Use bottled water. If you use the tap water, you will get sick because it is contaminated and your body cannot handle it. Um, I think that's the same concept here. It's very possible that Timothy had stomach problems because of contaminated water that was there in the ancient world. And so Paul tells him, don't, don't drink this water. Drink no longer water. Stop drinking this stuff that's hurting you. And then Paul continued, use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and then oft infirmities. So it's very obvious this was for medical purposes, not an allowance for social drinking. It also begs the question, what kind of wine was Paul referring to? Was it fermented or unfermented? Well, to me, you know, would Paul really encourage the use of something that the Bible tells us to not even look at? Would it encourage the use of something that can bring sorrow, woe, babbling, and wounds? Would he encourage a drink that is deceptive and perverts judgment? I don't think so. Uh, To me, it's so clear when you look at context as a whole that this is talking about grape juice or some form of juice because there are health benefits to grape juice. There are no health benefits to alcohol. I've got an uh, an article here and I've I've got many more. I'm not going to read it to you for the sake of time. But it talks about the impact of alcohol on our kidneys. God did not create our bodies to absorb alcohol. And the more you drink, the more harm you do to yourself. It is destroying your system, the the cells, the organs, all parts of your body. It's, It's a mess. Really, in all of this, though, in all that we've covered tonight, people are asking the wrong question. Instead of asking what's wrong with drinking, the question should be what's right with it. What's right with it? What good is going to come from it? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies are not our own. They are the temple of God. You have God, the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a believer, God, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. And you are sealed until the day of redemption. And we are to use our bodies for his honor and for his glory. 
not allow anything that creates our judgment to, to be wrong. So I think it's very clear. There's nothing good about putting alcohol in your system. We've seen that statistically, scientifically, medically, and most importantly, biblically. There's nothing good about putting it in your system. Again, those are good questions that people might ask. Maybe you had those questions, and I hope you have the answer now. Uh, if you did not have those questions, though, maybe someone will ask you those questions at some point in your life, and now you can give them an answer from God's word. Maybe you're here tonight as well, and you're not sure where you will spend eternity. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this world who turn to alcohol to try to drown out the problems of life. That, of course, is not the solution. And for an individual who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them, there's a worse fate that awaits them. God does not want that for anyone, though. God loves us so much. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He took our place on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again the third day, proving that he had conquered death in the grave. We are all sinners. We've all done wrong. Our sin separates us from God. There's nothing good we can do to save ourselves. But God took our place and he paid our sin debt in full. Let this hand represent you and me. Let this wallet represent our sin. God loves us. God so loved the world. But he hates our sin. To get to heaven, we've got to be rid of this. And we cannot do that on our own. Let this hand represent Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. As John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid our sin debt. He paid it in full. It is finished. That's what he said. There's nothing left for us to pay. And when we place our faith in him, we believe on him. At that exact moment, we have everlasting life. I pray that everyone here tonight has trusted in Christ as their Savior. If you have not, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him that he paid the price for your sins and you can know you are saved and you're eternally secure. And now that you're saved, God wants to give you the abundant life. And alcohol is not going to help in any form. Uh, so may I encourage you, if this is an area you struggle with, talk to God about it. Get help and uh, make the right decisions. And uh, glad that God answers these tough questions in his word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for each person that made it out tonight. We thank you for the many ways you provide and take care of us. Uh, be with each person as we go about our week. Help us to bring you glory and honor. And we thank you for the tough questions you do answer in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.